Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello and welcome to The Rest is History. Today's topic is one I've been looking forward to ever since we came up with the idea for this podcast. It is Weird Wars, our favourite obscure, little-known, colourful or just downright strange wars. It's probably worthwhile saying in the beginning. Of course, every war involves an awful lot of suffering, so we're not making light of that. Well, no more than is tasteful anyway. Uh, my my ever-tasteful guest is Tom Holland. Hello, Tom. Guest. I'm not your guest, Dominic. I'm your co-presenter. <laughs> Stop trying to elbow me off. Let's have a war about it. The pod war of 2021. I, I hoped. I've been saving that up for weeks. I'm thinking, <laughs> can, when can I, if I distract him with some just sort of blather, then I can sneak that in and he won't notice. And then once well, it's said, it is said. I noticed. I noticed. Well, as the host, Dominic, perhaps you'd like to spell out what, what, what the format is. So we're going to choose five wars each. And uh, with all due respect to the casualties, we're going to discuss them and um, what's strange about them. And yeah. um, th- then, and that's it, really. It's very simple. Yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe we can have a public vote on who has the best one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> since, we're not ta- since we haven't taken questions, we'll, we'll obviously um, welcome feedback and people can choose their favourite um, yeah, and I'm the sure one that we think we've most misrepresented. Or the one that we've missed out. I'm sure listeners yeah. will have their own they will indeed and i suppose it's worth saying as well you know we're doing this from you know comfortable prosperous britain uh and and these wars seem weird to us but of course they don't seem weird to the people in the, in no. the countries involved so to some extent they they reflect our our ignorance and solipsism i suppose yes but yeah. with that caveat um why don't you go first give us give us one of your one of your wars okay i'm going to kick off with the uh, the oldest war i've got on my list um which dates from 590 bc and it's the first sacred war. Uh, and it actually takes us back to um, a theme we touched on in the previous podcast, which is Delphi. Um, okay. And it, it, was, it was fought by uh, a league of Greek cities who were anxious that um, a city called Kira, which was the port that people would land when they wanted to go to Delphi, that Kira was becoming too dominant and essentially wanted to absorb Delphi into uh, its its own kind of framework of power. So a league of, of cities, which included Sicyon, which was a, a city on the north of the Peloponnese, kind of directly opposite Kira, and Athens, several other cities as well, um, got together and they were told to do this, they said, by Apollo. Um, and Apollo basically said, not only capture Kira, but nuke it, nuke all the lands around it, make them uninhabitable. Um, I don't want anyone ever living there again. And so what um, what this league does is they lay siege to Kira and they cut off the water supply so that everyone in Kira starts to, um, to die of thirst. And then they take a, a poisonous plant called hellebore and they put it in the water supply. Clever. And the water goes back in and everyone in Kira drinks it and they are all poisoned. And wow, that's harsh. It is harsh. And in some way, we're not quite sure. It 
the lands all around Kira are, are indeed left devastated because um, we have the record of Pausanias, who is a, a geographer writing around 150 AD, so centuries after this war. And he says that the plains around Kira um, are completely barren. Um, people don't plant trees there. The land is still under a curse. Um, the anger of Apollo still marks it. Um, and again, we, we talked in the, the, the last podcast about how the priests of Apollo were really the only professional priests. And yeah. that's because of the sacred war. It's essentially because this league get together and say that Delphi is, you know, it, it, it has to be a kind of independent temple complex. It cannot come under the influence of any one city. Um, but I, I choose this because I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's kind of the, the first example really of, uh, of 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 using plants to poison people. It's kind of hint of chemical warfare there. Chemical warfare. Um, so and there's no sense that the Greeks had that this was bad form. That they they, they thought it was crafty. Yes, I mean it's 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 clearly remembered because it was seen as being terrible, um, and it required the sanction of um, of Apollo. And and it kind of interesting context, I think, for for the sense that something quite sinister had happened is that um suppose well there are various accounts about how this came about i think this is kind of a hint of legend there but one of the accounts says that um the person who comes up with this idea is a, a guy called nebros who's a follower of asclepius who is uh, the god of healing um and one of his descendants supposedly is hippocrates Okay. And Hippocrates, of course, is the guy with the oath that, that yeah. you know, you, 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 if you become a doctor, you swear you won't do people any harm. And there is a thesis that this, the Hippocratic Oath, is is a kind of an attempt to oh, right. make to, amends to make up for, for, yeah. for his ancestor, what his ancestor did in the first sacred war. So anyway, so that's my first choice. Um, but you said it's the first sacred war. There are other sacred wars. <laughs> yes, there are there are further sacred wars, but they're not quite as they're not as exciting. Not quite as much to talk about. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. All right, um, I'm going to go in, go in really strong with my first one. So my first one is The War of Canudos. Um, have you ever read a book called The War of the End of the World by Mario Vargas Llosa? Uh, I have. Tom. So, I yes, have. so in that case, you'll know that it's about a war in Brazil in 1896 to 7. Um, so basically what happened was the Brazilians, Brazil was this colossal plantation, effectively, for several hundred years. And then at the end of the 1880s, the Brazilians... Um, the Brazilian emperor uh, abolished slavery, Don Pedro II, but then the sort of military elite kicked him out and they, they wanted him to go. And for the next 10 years, Brazil was very unstable, very sort of um, uh, a sort of tense, conflicted place. And in this fragmented landscape, this sort of prophet figure called Antonio Conciliero, Antonio the counsellor, he, he comes along. And he basically says, let's set up in, in Baia, in this sort of back country, very poor, big slave, ex-slave population, a lot of mixed race people as well. He says, um, let's set up this, this sort of sacred community at a place called Canudos, and we'll wait there for the coming of uh, the, the late, <laughs> the medieval Portuguese king, Sebastião, Sebast Sebastian. Um, Sebastian will come and, and he will bring the sort of the new Jerusalem and, and better times. So all these people, I mean, thousands of people go to live at this place. And the Brazilian military, who are all um, secularists and Freemasonry is very strong in Brazil. So they're Freemasonry and sort of enlightened thinking and stuff. They say these people are backward. They're monarchists. They're going to bring the country down. We must crush them and extirpate them. And they send troops and there's multiple attacks on Canudos. Um, 
and eventually the military wins. They destroy the the settlements, they kill most of the people, they kill about 25,000 people. And it's this extraordinary conflict. So on the one side, you've got the forces of kind of progress and liberty and order and modernity who are effectively, in and in the novel and in our sense of the war, they're the kind of bad guys. And then the other, you have the dispossessed, a lot of bandits, ex-prostitutes, ex-slaves who are tend to be black who are in this city and they end up all being killed. So it's kind of a sad, it's a strange, very strange, but sad story. Is it um, famous in South America? Do you know? I think it's famous in Brazil. Right. Um, and I think, you know, Brazilian, nobody in the West, in, in well, the West, in the in Western Europe really knows any Brazilian history, I suppose, unless they're Portuguese. Um, we certainly don't know it in, in England. I mean, you know, it's a it's a black hole, I guess. Um, and and its, its strangeness, I think, comes from the fact that, you know, we have no real reference points from a yeah. sort of Anglo-Saxon perspective. Um, yeah. But also because it's it's one of, it's 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 almost like the Waco siege writ large. Remember the R- Waco siege in the yeah. in the nineties? It's got a slight element of that about it. But because it's rooted in this sort of world of slavery and of and of intense racism, um, and of sort of this f- fanaticism about progress. So the Brazilian army just think we need to sort of completely destroy these people um, because they're backward. It makes you think the whole magical realist tradition in South American fiction that actually yeah. <laughs> the realist it is, it is quite yeah, realist. realist. Yeah, I mean, yes. kind of strange things yeah. are really are going on. Well, I'm going to come back to South America and a little with a later war um, because I okay. think their wars are so little known here and are often they're incredibly violent and, and bloody. Okay, well, I, I've um, my ne- my next choice also has a prophet. But it's a female prophet, and she features in um, the Umayyad Berber War of the six nineties to seven hundred two AD. Wow, that is that is a niche war. <laughs> but this is a great. This is a, this is this is a, a, an astonishing war. Um, so it's taking place during the Arab conquest of um, the uh, South Mediterranean coast. So they've conquered Egypt. Um, they sweep westwards. Um, they come to uh, the Byzantine province of. Africa, so it's ruled from Constantinople, including the great city of Carthage, it falls. And the Arab commander, his troops are now looking westwards towards what, the Straits of Gibraltar and ultimately Spain. But to do that, they have to get past the Berbers, who are notoriously yeah. tough opponents. They, you know, they'd oppose the Byzantines, they'd oppose the Visigoths, they'd oppose the Romans, they'd oppose the Carthaginians. They're very, very tough opponents. And the Arabs are overconfident. And they they go sweeping in and they come up against the Berbers who are led by a queen called Dia. Um, but she is better known by the Arab word for prophetess, Al-Kahina. Um, and she is supposed to have had the gift of being able to speak to birds. So she was kind of wow. kept informed. So, yeah. you know, they were her scouts. Um, she was meant to have um, murdered her husband on her wedding night. Um, and according to Ibn Khaldun, the great um, Arab historian writing in the Middle Ages, um, she's meant to have been Jewish, not not um, uh, descended from um, children of Israel, but mm. she had adopted the Jewish faith, Interesting. Uh, supposedly. Although there are other traditions that say that she was a Christian or that she was um, a pagan. Basically, we don't know very much about her, but almost everything <laughs> right. that we do know about her is fantastical. And it's clear that she did... She, she, she defeats the Arabs um, in a great battle beside a river in uh, 696. 
uh, and the Arabs retreat and they lick their wounds. And um, uh, Dia is anxious that they're going to come back. So what she does supposedly is to try and create a cordon sanitaire by um, kind of destroying uh, everything so that the Arabs won't have anything to forage or live off. But this just alienates her subjects. And so when the Arabs come back this time, she loses, she gets pursued into the mountains and she gets killed in battle. Um, oh. And she's supposed, before she dies, to tell her, her her sons, go and become Muslim. And she's supposed to say to all the Berbers, become Muslim. Right. How convenient that that's in the Arab tradition. She's kind of, I suppose, the, the North African Boudicca. She's yeah. the great warrior queen who's, who's fighting uh, the imperialists. And so she's put to, um, and the fact that she's supposedly Jewish as well, you know, made, made her um, a subject of great interest um, in the 19th century. Uh, she was used by the French as a kind of emblem of resistance to Islam. And she was used by um, people in Algeria uh, as an emblem of resistance against the French. <laughs> so right. She's she's quite a kind of malleable and potent symbol. So this is um, in modern day Algeria, right? This is yes, yes modern yeah. day Algeria. Why did she win? Where did she win initially? Because the Arabs had carried all before them, hadn't they? I mean, they were unstoppable. I think the Berbs just very very tough, very tough. And maybe um, they've been underestimated by the. Yeah, and also the um, the Arabs are are going along the north coast. Um, where there are cities, where it's much easier to water your horses, get supplies, um, and they're, they're defeated in more hostile terrain. Yeah, never go into the interior. That's the lesson. Never go into it? the interior. Never go into the interior. Yes. But I choose her because I think that um, prophetesses who are kept informed of their enemies' movement by birds. I don't think there are enough of them in the historical <laughs> no, records. Right. So, so that's so I I, I give choice. you um, I give you Alcahina. Okay. Well, um, since you've done an African one, especially one where people go into the interior, I'm going to choose a very strange um, African war in which people go into the interior. So this is the British expedition to Abyssinia, 1867-68. So if you've, for the listeners who've read the Flashman books, um, this is Flashman in Ethiopia, if you um, remember that. So this is a this is a war that basically begins with a, a, an unanswered letter. So you have Abyssinia, Ethiopia, and their king is called Tewodros II. People called him Theodore in, in Britain. And he's a sort of modernizer. Everyone said he was this great romantic figure, a kind of Robin Hood of a king who was um, wanted to break the power of the old kind of landowning elite and um, sort of drag his country towards the 19th century uh, and build things and all this business. And he provoked a lot of rebellions. And he wanted military assistance from the, from Europe. So he writes these letters to, I think, Russia, France, and Britain. And he writes to Queen Victoria and says, can you please send me some military aid? And Queen Victoria ignored his, was told by the Foreign Office, don't write back, just, you know, don't, you, you know, ignore him, he'll go away. <laughs> He's the Emperor of Abyssinia, you need to give him no thought at all. And, you know, she's probably got other things on her mind. So two years went by. He was outraged that he didn't get a reply from Queen Victoria, which he regarded as a Did the Russians and French reply? No, they didn't reply at all. I mean, that Maybe was the reply. sort of... Yeah, Can't I mean, he rude. didn't get any help from anybody. People, people rude, treated rude, him rude. with... People treated him very badly. But he was particularly outraged about Queen Victoria. And in revenge, he started capturing missionaries and um, sort of British traders and people wandering through and locking them up as hostages until he got a reply from Queen Victoria. Yeah, fair enough. So the British had an expedition to, to crush him. And this expedition came was the army, it came from India, uh, led by Sir Robert Napier, who was um, 
leading sort of general in India. And they have this colossal military expedition. They land on the Red Sea. They have to take all kinds of engineers and things to basically get them across 400 miles into the, the sort of heart of Ethiopia. They don't really know where they're going. Um, you know, it's this sort of real, real sort of leave in the dark. And they go all this way. I mean, they go 400 miles um, to Wadros. He retreats to his sort of mountain citadel, a place called Magdala, uh, with the missionaries, with the sort of prisoners. Um, and he's determined to hold out. And so um, they lay siege and they defeat his army and the British break in. And ironically, he shoots himself with a, a dueling pistol that was a present from Queen, Queen Victoria. Victoria. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. And, and do, do we do we loot all kinds of stuff and bring it back to the British Museum, that kind of thing? And then exactly. And then we sort of came home again and said, you know, in future, <laughs> when we don't reply to your letters, you know, behave yourself and don't take it so badly. Um, so in the Flashman books, Flashman sort of presents it as a... Um, we were talking about historical fiction in one of the previous podcasts, and the Flashman book actually presents it as quite a sad story that Theodore just wanted to reply to his letter. Yeah, well, I'm completely on his side. The British lost... So the Abyssinians lost hundreds of people, I think. Uh, the British lost two. We lost two men in the whole expedition. Because we had the Gatling gun and they did not. Precisely. We had all this technology yeah. and, you know, we're just fighting people with um, swords and spears and muskets. Well, okay, well... Time for one more from me and then we'll have the break. And Dominic, I chose this one specially for you because I think that you're going to pick up on why I've chosen it. And it's the um, the German-Hungarian War of 955. So, Wow. Is that the Battle of the... Is that the Battle, the Battle of, of the River Lech. Yes. Yeah. Battle of the River Lech. And um, the two contestants on this, we have um, the, uh, the Saxon kings. Saxon kings are highly mobile, heavy cavalry, um, they're in possession of the spear of power, the spear that supposedly wow. pierced the uh, the side of Christ on the cross and is possessed of a, a terrifying potency. Spear um, of power, that's amazing. And uh, and and they look back to the example of Charlemagne and ultimately of uh, the Roman Empire, um, but there is no empire um, that that has gone. So, yeah, um, no emperors. And on the other side, we have the Hungarians, who are highly mobile um, people who've settled on the Carpathian Plain. Uh, with their horses, they're able to launch raids against Christian Europe. Um, Christians find them impossible to hold off, um, completely terrifying. The Hungarians are supposed to drink blood. They're seen as demonic um, children of the devil, portents of the apocalypse. So there's the whole backdrop to this is kind of lit up by a sense of the clash of good and evil, of the satanic and the angelic, um, and the feeling that uh, patterns are being written on the flux of time, all of which provides the background for um, what is the, the ultimate Hungarian invasion, where they come not with horses, but with siege engines as well. And this time mm. they're trying to conquer. And their target is Augsburg. And they bring huge battering rams, siege engines. Um, and the message goes to uh, Otto, who is up in the north in Saxony, please come to our rescue. And in the meanwhile, the citizens of Augsburg have to hold off. And they are led in the siege by uh, the Bishop of Augsburg, Ulrich, guy with a great long flowing white beard who rides around on his horse on the battlements, 
gazing oh, out. I can see where this the, is going. The mighty hordes of the east who have flown yeah. out. Um, and at one point, um, the uh, the gates are smashed by um, the battering ram, and Ulrich stands there holding up his cross to stop the uh, Hungarian hordes from coming in and people come to the rescue and they're able to hold up the uh, the gate. Um, and just when it seems the city's about to fall, um, people in Augsburg hear the battle horns and they look up to the oh. hill and there arriving the, is the, uh, the, 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 the cavalry of the heavy cavalry led by, um, led by Otto, who charges down the hill, shatters the, uh, the Hungarian hordes. They're trampled down and that evening, um, amid the, the, the cries and howls of the dying across the, the plains beyond Augsburg, um, Otto is hailed by his troops as Imperator, as Emperor. And six years later in Rome, he is crowned as Emperor and it is the return of the Imperator. <laughs> so I, I, I give you that because there are clearly echoes there of uh, Return of the King. And I know you're a Tolkien fan. When so, this podcast um, goes out, I think they should put under it the Lord of the Rings soundtrack for your, <laughs> yes. for your monologue. And people can listen to it on a loop. <laughs> Yes. Okay. okay. So, so on that that perhaps slightly histrionic tone, um, let's let's go for a break. When we okay. come back, we've got five more five more weird wars for you. Hello, welcome back to this episode of The Rest is History. We're doing our top 10 weird wars. Five from me, five from Dominic. Um, Dominic, your turn, your third choice. Well, Tom, you took us out on a note of high melodrama there with your <laughs> uh, your, your Siege of Augsburg. Um, so I shall um, come back with some low comedy. It is, of course, the War of Jenkins's ear. Oh, um, yes. Everybody's famous ear-based war. <laughs> and, um, there aren't enough, are there? No, there aren't. So this is a war that went from 1739 to 1748, although I think most of the fighting ended a little bit earlier. And um, if people know anything about it, I mean, most people know practically nothing about 18th century wars, do they? But if people know anything about it, they'll know that there was a fellow called Robert Jenkins who was a Welsh merchant whose ship was captured by the Spanish um, in the Caribbean and... Jenkins was sort of trading, they suspected him of smuggling and trading illegally, so they cut his ear off. So this happened actually in 1731, which is eight years before the war happened. So Jenkins comes back home, and uh, the story goes that he exhibited his ear to a, to the House of Commons. So he had it pickled, <laughs> and he carried it around in a jar. And he supposedly... I'm sure it was horrid. Well... It turns out this story is totally untrue. Actually, uh, he oh, didn't. Okay. He did nothing of the sort. There is a there are cartoons um, then at the time showing him showing his ear to Sir Robert Walpole, who was prime minister, and, and Walpole looking away because he doesn't want to look at it. He wants to eye up some girls instead. This is what's happening in the in the cartoons, and this was because the sort of um, opposition to Walpole wanted war with Spain. They wanted um, the Spanish were not letting. Uh, the British trade with their colonies. They weren't letting our ships in to sell them goods, particularly um, in the sort of, there was a lot of tension along the coast of North America where the British had just started up a colony in Georgia, which was next to the Spanish colony in Florida. The British wanted to get into Florida. The Spanish weren't having it. So people wanted Warport to go to war and, if, and, and they used Jenkins's ear as an example of the what they saw as these sort of Spanish depredations. They said, you know, this fellow's had his ear cut off. You're not doing anything about it. Do you have a question, Tom? 
I do. I was wondering, is this, is this, is this when uh, Walpole says, let sleeping dogs lie? I don't know. That's a good question. Oh, maybe That's a very is. good maybe question. Maybe it is. I hope it is. Well, there are, there are, you'll find out there are some th- interesting things we've got from the War of Jenkins here. So finally we go to war in 1739. Walpole's kind of at the end of his time and he says, fine. He's always tried to stay out of wars, but he says, fine, have your war. We fight this war with the Spanish. And basically, actually, the, the War of Jenkins is a bit pathetic because it ends up, it's a bit of a draw. Nothing happens. It gets subsumed into the war of the Austrian succession which I have to confess I know virtually nothing about. Um, however, the war that Jenkins did does give us a couple of things. So one of the great sort of um, high points for the British is we capture a place called Portobello in Panama. And we get two things from that. One is Portobello Road, um, uh, yeah, which comes Hill. from Notting Hill. And there's an area of Edinburgh called Portobello as well. And we get Royal Britannia. So Royal Britannia was written um, after the capture of Portobello to sort of celebrate... Um, at uh, our, our great victories in um, in the Caribbean. So the last night of the proms, we could all wave ears. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, I do that. I anyway. mean, no one would complain about that. Would that would unite the the country in? Yeah. Instead of people going of... with with sort of EU flags as they do now, um, everybody should take Let's giant just wave ears. An ear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would surely be seen as anti-Spanish, though, wouldn't it? Be seen as Hispanophobic now. I'm sure the Spanish wouldn't mind. Yeah, they'd probably got an opportunity to wave large ears in the air. I mean, I, no, yeah. I'm sure they 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 wouldn't object. Right. Well, uh, my um, my uh, fourth one is also um, involves trading wars over vast distances, uh, and it's the Dutch Portuguese War, which went from 1602 to 1663. And the reason I've chosen this is because I think that actually this is the First World War. Wow, that's a big claim. And the reason it's the First World War, I mean, I suppose you, you've got the Mongol conquest, haven't you? I mean, that, that's ranging from Japan up to wherever, Hungary. But yeah, but not all at the same time, surely. It, yeah, it's, and it's all on one continent. Whereas the thing about the, the Dutch-Portuguese War is that it, it is properly global. So okay. it, it, yeah. So Portugal has, uh, over the course of the 16th, late 15th, 16th century, has carved out this um, empire, which would include Brazil, Cape of Good Hope, Angola, um, Goa in India... Um, various kind of Macau um, and so on, and various places are controlling the spice trade in the Pacific. And you've got the Dutch as the kind of the coming traders. Um, it's basically, uh, it, you know, as as with the uh, the British conquest of India, it's basically kind of companies who are running this war rather than the yeah. Netherlands itself. So it's the Dutch East and West 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 West, West and the companies who are who are pushing it. Um, and you get. You get wars that span South America, Africa, India, the Pacific. Um, yeah. And the Dutch don't manage to, to, to take Brazil. They don't manage to take Angola. But they do, with momentous consequences, um, seize the Cape of Good Hope. So yeah. that's essentially, you know, lots are going to come from that. And um, although the, the, the Portuguese keep keep hold of um, Goa and Macau, the Dutch basically kind of elbow them out of the way to seize control of the Pacific spice trade. So that's um, Indonesia, the Dutch East Indies. Yeah, basically. so Indonesia, yeah, yeah, Jakarta, Batavia, um, and, and so on. Um, uh, and it's, you know, it's a, it's a war over spice, but it is, it is I think, properly the First World War. So um, that's that's why I've chosen it. And is that where um, Suriname comes from because Suriname was a Dutch colony am I right in South America yes yeah, so that's where yes and and um also they the Dutch build the fort at Gaul 
which uh, provides the backdrop um, for the test match. (laughs) In Sri Lanka. So uh, that's, that's another reason for choosing it. So that's a nice war because that's those are two people who you don't imagine going to war with each other, you know, Holland and Portugal, a sort of you know perennial World Cup quarter finalists. Well, except that Portugal at this time is is ruled by the Spanish king, so obviously there's a bit of beef okay. between the Spanish and the Dutch, so that is going yeah. back. But actually, the um, the Portuguese feel that they haven't been properly backed by the Spanish, so that's a massive contributory factor in the Portuguese deciding to go independent again. Right, interesting. Because I was going to say what happened to the Spanish and the Portuguese. So the Portuguese lost this war. This was a Dutch win. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Okay. But then, but but you know who the real winners are? The British, English. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> basically, <laughs> basically, the Portuguese and the Dutch are left so exhausted that it's then easy pickings for the English to move in. So the, that's how the English get hold of you know the Dutch rule Gaul and Sri Lanka for a while, and then it's not long before the British are muscling in. So uh, as per normal, we are we we are the bad guys. Perfidious Albion, yeah. Okay, jolly good. Um, I've got two left, haven't I? So I shall go with my with the the probably the more bizarre of my two remaining choices. This is the War of the Triple Alliance, which is also I mean that doesn't give anything away, does it? Could be anywhere, but it's also known as the Paraguayan War. So so this is actually a terrible war. This is an unbelievably bloody war, um, which begins for. Very sort of obscure reason. So Paraguay is, is generally a very strange place, completely landlocked in the middle of South America. Um, it was basically a, a sort of a Spanish administrative division that, that broke away when the Spanish <coughs> lost South America. And um, it was run for a while by a man called Dr. Francia, who was a disciple of Rousseau. And he tried to run Paraguay. He tried to make it an idealized Rousseau-style society. So it's completely isolationist. He had complete control. He's very anti-clerical. He's very keen on prostitution uh, as one of the sort of key industries of, of Paraguay. <laughs> so again, it sounds like a kind of magical realism. It does, exactly. So Paraguay is this weird introverted place. And um, and basically Paraguay also kind of starts the war, which you would think is a foolish thing to do if you're going to take on Argentina and Brazil. So there is a conspiracy theory. Actually, interestingly, going back to your last war, there's a conspiracy theory that actually the British um, planned this war. That, so that, bad, are we? <laughs> it was, but it turns out to be totally untrue. It's, it's very deeply rooted in South America, but academics think it's totally untrue. The British, for their own perverse reasons, wanted the Paraguayans defeated, um, which right. we didn't. Um, so anyway, Paraguay decide they're going to fight Argentina and Brazil simultaneously. Um, and they, can, they reckon they can handle it. And it turns out that they can't. So the war lasts for six years. It basically goes on in the 1860s, the same time as the American Civil War, and it is colossally bloody. So about half a million people die in total. The Paraguayans are totally defeated, um, and they lost. So, so get this, historical estimates about the number of people who died from Paraguay's population range between about 60% and 90%. Goodness um, so basically everybody or, or, or a colossal proportion of people are killed. At the end, there are about four or five times as many women in Paraguay as there are men. And historians and sociologists think that this has sort of completely affected Paraguay's development ever since. And Paraguay is utterly brutalized by its neighbors. It's occupied. Basically, most the vast majority of the men are killed. And ever since, Paraguay has remained this very sort of strange, introverted, um, quite isolationist regime. So that's why, you know, it was the sort of destination of choice for Nazi war criminals 
at the end of World War II because you could be sure that no one's going to come after you um, in Paraguay. The only person I know who's been to Paraguay is Alan Wicker. In Wicker's, there's right. a brilliant edition of Wicker's World where he goes to Paraguay. Um, but anyway, yeah, the Paraguayan War. Nobody knows about it. And and um, it was colossally, um, it, was, it was horrible. That sounds horrible. Okay, well, I'm, I'm going to give you a war now where nobody dies, or at least no oh. humans die. Because, That's a cheery um, war. It's the Emu War of 1932. Are you okay with the Emu? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, a Rod Hull. Uh, it's not Rod Hull. No, it's in a way even a lot funnier than Rod Hull. Um, so this is about it's rather kind of Roman. Roman soldiers would come back and be given plots of land. Um, and rather similarly, after the First World War, Australian troops coming back to Australia would were given plots of land in um, arable territory in Western Australia. Um, and they set up their farms there. And then um, their lands get invaded by a task force of 20,000 emus. Wow, a task and force. The, the emus are, are kind of devastate the land. And so all these soldiers start saying, well, we need to take them out. And of course, they're all you know very good with machine guns and things. Yeah. And they're kind of armed to the teeth. Um, and the Royal Australia Artillery see an opportunity to kind of have a bit of practice so they can use the emus as target practice. And so they go in to, to take on the, the emus and there was all kinds of jingoistic um, footage, uh, which, which you can see. And it's kind of going, yeah. always going in. Uh, look at these emus running at 40 miles per hour. These are tough enemy. Um, and it turns out actually they are incredibly tough enemy because um, they just run and then they kind of come up in yeah. the rear and oh, take God. out all the take out all the take out all the crops, and um, the uh, the commander uh, ends up comparing them to Zulus. He says that you know they they just kind of melt away, and then when you think that uh, you've you've got them on the run, suddenly they they attack you from the side. Um, and he says that they, that that they kind of you know when facing machine guns, they have the invulnerability of tanks, wow. and the whole thing is is a kind of. Um, a, a, a parody of colonial wars, really, of yeah. the the kind of the mismatch between heavily armed European troops and the way in which kind of repeatedly they find it difficult to um, essentially kind of enforce their will. Um, and, and, and the emus basically get away with it. The emus uh, win. And, and, yeah, the emus kind of win. Yeah. I mean, they, it's, 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 Basically, it's I think pretty much the only war that dinosaurs have won since <laughs> since the Mesozoic. So, <laughs> so hold on, a lot of these Australians—they must have are they veterans of the First World War? Yeah. God, so they 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 could beat the Germans, but they couldn't beat the emus. Well, they, they I guess they're, they're kind of used to, to being in trenches where you know where the enemy are, whereas the emus, yeah. you know, they can run at forty miles an hour. So it is they're a kind of place. yes, it is a kind of metaphor for Vietnam or something, isn't it? It yeah. is, and um, and of course, you know, looking ahead, you've got um, you've got Singapore, mm. uh, lots of Singapore. You've got the, the French in Indochina. You've got Vietnam. Um, yeah, so there's Iraq, I mean, as a kind of Afghanistan. A meta- yes, as a, as a metaphor for the Western way of war and its inadequacy, it's it's kind of perfect. And if I were a magical realist novelist, I was about I to say for this. Yeah. yeah. Surely some there's an Australian Booker Prize winner in this, isn't there? <laughs> you thought so. Yes. <laughs> um, all right. Well. Um, my final war is a bit less jolly. Um, it's a very bloody war, probably the bloodiest one we've we've done. Um, it's the Russian Civil War. So 
This is a colossal war that often we know nothing about. We sort of assume the Russian Revolution happened and then you have the Soviet Union and, and it's sort of inevitable. But of course, it wasn't inevitable, not least because the Allies hoped to strangle um, uh, Bolshevism at birth. So we were landing small amounts of troops at um, sort of Arch- Archangel and Murmansk and whatnot. Um, but also because it, it it looks like a war from a video game, from a sort of computer strategy game, or from you know if you're playing Risk or something. So you have these colossal armies kind of wandering across these massive expanses of territory. Uh, the Bolsheviks are surrounded. There are white Russian armies on all sides, and often it looks as though the Bolsheviks are, are going to lose because the the whites control colossal areas of of Siberia and stuff. Um, there are, there are very strange combatants. So the Baltic states are involved, um, Poland are involved, Ukraine, the Allies are involved, but also, of course, the Germans are involved because at the end of the war, the Germans are still in the game. There are people like the Mountainous Republic of the Northern Caucasus, so all these countries that don't exist anymore um, that are involved too. And my favourite combatants, are the ones that I find most intriguing, are a group of people, there are about 50,000 of them, called the Czech Legion. So you might wonder why the Czech Legion are in Russia. They're prisoners of war. They're Austro-Hungarian prisoners of war that have been held in camps in Russia. And basically when Tsarism um, fails, they decide that they are going to go, they want to rejoin the war. They want to get back to um, what becomes Czechoslovakia. But they can't go west because of the the Germans and the war. So they decide they're going to go east. They'll go all the way to the Pacific by train then they'll go through the US, across the Atlantic, and they'll get back that way. Like a sort of gap year gone horribly wrong. Um, but basically, on the way, they get distracted and they get drawn into the war. They seize control of the entire Trans-Siberian Railway. And there were these sort of trains of Czechs for months, crossing Russia, capturing towns, intervening in the war. And at one point, you know, they're the biggest threat to the Bolsheviks. So that doesn't survivor. appear in Dr. Shavargate, does it? No, it doesn't, but it should. I mean, it's such a great story. They appear a bit in a book, a book called um, "People's History of Love" by James by James Meek, a novel. Um, and the Czechs are in that, but the Czechs are really never discussed in sort of Western um, sort of histories of communism in the Soviet Union um, because they they're such back? a sort of they did get back. They went all the way. They 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 oh. messed around in the war for a bit, and then they kind of lost interest um, and and went off to the Pacific um, and went through. America, and they did get back. I mean, it's an amazing story. They travelled thousands of miles and these armoured trains. Um, and, of course, the, the Bolsheviks won. The Bolsheviks won the war because they were the only... They controlled the industrial centres and they controlled Moscow, um, but also because they were the only people that were really selling the Russian peasantry a positive message. So the sort of... The whites, I mean, they're very much kind of skull and crossbones kind of characters. They're very anti-Semitic, and they just have this pure sort of negative... They want to bring back feudalism and reactionary kind of um uh sort of reactionary world of czarist russia and and not surprisingly the rush the ordinary russians don't really fancy that but you know it could have gone it could have gone either way um and it's just such a massive confused you know it feels like a board game gone wrong uh, in which millions of people die i mean you know millions upon millions of people die and as you said at the beginning that is the key thing to bear in mind is that Everything we've discussed, apart from the emu war, yeah, even some emus die, um, is yeah terrible. Although the interesting thing, though, Tom, I thought we'd um, discuss this right at the end is 
There are some historians who argue that wars are good things. So, for example, Margaret Macmillan in her Wreath Lectures in her book about war, you know, she sort of says people not war, <laughs> but war is often a great force for progress. Lots of inventions, um, but also society, you know, human society often progresses by kind of leaps and bounds that are driven by wars. But then again, Dominic, war, what is it good for? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely nothing. Discuss. Maybe we'll, <laughs> yes. well, maybe we'll have maybe we'll have a podcast on uh, whether war is good for anything. Um, some later time. I think it's but, probably easy to say it's good for something if you're in your seminar room. Um, <laughs> if you're in a trench, maybe it feels a bit. Yeah, or, or, or if you're a, conquer, a mighty conqueror. Yeah, drinking from your you know adversary's skull. Well, that's a, a charming note on which to end. Um, we will be back on Monday when we will be discussing. The 90s, and that's the 1990s. Uh, we will see you then. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. We've got another podcast that we'd love you to try as well. It's obsessed with history too, but just six years of history, albeit a pretty important six years. It's called We Have Ways of Making You Talk. And it's all about the Second World War. My brother, James Holland, presents the show with comedian and avid historian Al Murray. Here's a taster. We have ways of making you talk wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, buddy, look out! Hey, buddy, look out! <laughs> Which is, of course, American English for Achtung, Achtung. How are you this morning, Jim? Yeah, no, I'm not too bad. How about you? Oh, all right, yeah, you know. Um, how, how did you pass your time over the weekend? How did I pass my time over the weekend? Building a diorama of Bastogne. Oh, Bastogne. yeah, no, I've got to say, that that, that is looking sehr toll, I have to say. Well, it's, yeah, oh, and you've been on Duolingo learning German, haven't you? <laughs> how can you tell? <laughs> ich kenne nicht, aber du hast sehr gut skills mit das Deutsch. <laughs> I do know how to say the ducks are eating the flies, which is great. Go on. Obviously very useful. Uh, Go on. Die Enten uh, frissen um, sie fliegen. Yeah, we need to work on the accent. <laughs> yeah, die Enten frissen die fliegen. <laughs> there you go. Goering really was rubbish, wasn't he? And isn't it amazing that had had he been operating for you know had he been operating in the Soviet Union you know he just would not have survived till 1945 no not no. a chance no. and it's odd that Hitler doesn't quite have the same ruthlessness as Stalin I don't think well yeah but that's Hitler's sort of um, tendency towards indecision isn't it as much yeah. as anything else he'd rather they're all fighting each other and that saves him having to make a decision whereas Stalin is all about siloing the power in himself. Yes. And using people to do his bidding until he decides they're no use to him anymore. And when they're no use to him anymore, they tend to end up purged. There's such a difference in style, in actual fact. Yeah. And there, you know, there is that the, the end of the war, Hitler saying, oh, Stalin had it right. You know, it's a thing we've talked about before. Yeah. Stalin had it right. I wish I'd been as ruthless as him. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Going would have lasted five minutes in the Soviet I mean, he's Union. so shit. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. <laughs> <laughs>